1209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let me just give you some ex- some free legal advice from a recovering federal prosecutor. If you don't want to irritate, there, there's the thing that probably ticks off prosecutors the most is if you threaten to kill them. Okay, so th- that's number one. But short of threatening to kill a prosecutor, the thing that I'm going to use the word ticked off, but there's another word that's coming to mind, um, irritates a prosecutor the most, short of a death threat, is when you go out and tamper with witnesses. That is the ultimate, ultimate no-no. And I, I, and I, I had this happen a couple times back in another life. You know, you, you build your case. The way it works is before someone is convicted, there is the presumption of innocence, you know, innocent until presumed guilty. So you get charged with a crime. You come in, the judge, the magistrate, the court commissioner, whatever, is going to have to decide whether you should be released on bail. When they are deciding bail, there's a number of different factors that you take into account. How likely, how serious is the crime? How likely is it that the person is to flee? And that's going to be a factor of the seriousness of the crime. I mean, if you're if you're charged with a minor sort of offense and you've got huge ties to the community, well, you're probably not going to run. On the other hand, if you're looking at life in prison without parole and you have minimal ties to the community, well, there's really not that much risk if you take off. So those are all factors that go into the decision to whether or not you're going to be released on bail. Many people get high bails. In the federal system, you can even be held without bail if you are deemed to be a danger to the community or just a, or a flight risk to the point that you know putting up money you know doesn't solve it um, there's also conditions you can get bail but there will be conditions that judges put on the bail and the conditions are going to vary depending on the crime for example if you are accused of let's say a drug crime maybe one of the conditions of the bail is going to be that you have to submit to Weekly drug testing. You know, they want to make sure that you're going to stay clean while you're out on bail. I had a number of situations where people who were out on bail and drug offenses, they would test positive for additional drug use while they were out on bail. That would be a basis to revoke them. Missing appointments with your you know, parole officer would be a reason. Maybe as a condition of bail, you get one of those ankle bracelets, for example, um, that, that goes off if you're on house arrest or something like that. There's all sorts of different conditions that get put on people. Some people are required to surrender their passport, for example. But one condition that applies to each and every person who is released on bail is that you do not tamper with witnesses. Paul Manafort, um, who is, of course, the the former temporary campaign chairman for the Trump campaign, who's got all sorts of trouble, he was released on on bail. A condition was that he stay that he be on uh, essentially house arrest. They not leave his home. And while he was at his home, he was apparently not limited with his ability to use the internet. And apparently, in in you know, it, it's tough to describe how dumb this was. But at least according to the prosecutors, he reached out to a couple people who are going to be witnesses in this case, and he tried to what we call tamper with the witnesses. He tried to suggest that they not cooperate or suggest what their testimony would be. This is an absolute no-no, and it doesn't matter 
doesn't matter whether you're out on bail for, I don't know, stealing money from the bank that you worked at if you're a teller, or whether you're out on bail being charged with all sorts of drug offenses, or whether you're a white-collar criminal. The one thing that irritates prosecutors the most, short of death threats, is trying to tamper with witnesses. And the court isn't too thrilled with it either. So what happened is apparently the prosecutors had evidence that he had reached out to witnesses. His story is that he didn't realize that they were going to be witnesses. Kind of tough to, to believe that. But regardless, after considering the evidence, they've now decided that Paul Manafort is going to be a guest of the federal government until his trial comes up. Um, and can you appeal it? Yeah, he, he could He could go back and ask the judge to reconsider. That's normally an exercise in futility. You could appeal to a higher court. That probably, it might, the chances of that succeeding are slim to none, and slim is probably on a bus out of town. So for, for the stupid criminal of the week, it, it's clearly Paul Manafort. And I take no position on the guilt or innocence on the underlying charges or how strong the government's case is. But if you are out on bail and you reach out to potential witnesses or actual witnesses and you try to coerce them or coach them into what they're going to say it is almost a guarantee that uh, if you get caught doing it your your bail is going to end up being revoked somebody was saying to me today hey does he get a chance to go home and get his toothbrush Uh uh-uh what happens is the u.s marshals typically they come over they put the bracelets on you and then they escort you into the back and next thing you know you're you know in an orange orange jumpsuit trying to figure out you know what time they're serving dinner at whatever county jail you're being held in. So no sympathy at all for Paul Manafort in this situation. He got bail, and he apparently screwed it up in a big way. What does this mean for Donald Trump? Well, well, who knows? I mean, who, who knows? I My sense of this case, again, has been – I. I they talk about wanting people to cooperate and all that that's fine as well as it goes but i just don't really don't think there's any sort of at least so far criminal culpability for donald trump but no crocodile tears for paul manafort if he tampered with witnesses and the judges at least found a basis for that no sympathy at all that is one of the ultimate ultimate no-nos and he'll be eating a cheese sandwich tonight at again whatever county jail he might be in waiting for his federal trial we start off today's show like we start off every show three big things we're going to talk in a little more detail about the the some of the stuff that was in the ig's report Uh, we're going to do that during the one o'clock hour but i want to start with one of one of the things that some one of the conclusions that some people are drawing as a result of the uh, Inspector General's report yesterday. Of course, the Inspector General's report, the top-line story is that it was extremely critical of James Comey for his public statements in connection with the investigation of Hillary Clinton. You will recall in July of 2016, he comes out and holds this virtually unprecedented press conference where he announces, we've done this investigation, but there's not going to be charges. And as I explained yesterday, that's not the function of the the director of the FBI. It's the U.S. attorney or the attorney general that make those decisions. And to discuss a case publicly, a huge breach of of protocol, of department policy, and, and I think a huge breach of ethics. But he does that. He clears Hillary Clinton or says there's no basis for criminal charges. And then in October, a couple weeks before the election, he, of course, realizes that now we found new evidence. We're going to have to take another look at it. So he then reverses field and says there's no there's now there's new evidence. and, And we're looking at this. He has been, of course, criticized 
appropriately so by the inspector general for these various violations of a protocol. But now you have a lot of people in Clinton's camp who are forgetting about the bump she got politically when Comey came out in July and said nothing to see here, no criminal involvement. Now the argument is that See, 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 we told you if it weren't for James Comey coming out and doing what he did in October, Hillary Clinton would have won. Now, the Comey letter in October came out about one week after the third presidential debate. It came out less than two weeks before Election Day. At that time, most polling averages showed Hillary Clinton ahead by around six percentage points in the national polls. A week later, after the release of this letter, her lead had declined to three points. All right, so she was starting to lose ground. And three points is more than enough to cover Trump's wins in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where he won each of those states by less than 1%. Late deciding voters broke overwhelmingly for Mr. Trump, according to the exit polls. And so the argument goes, it was the Comey letter which drove people to vote for Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton. Therefore, this is why she lost. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Do you buy this? Was the Comey letter in October the reason Hillary Clinton lost in November of 2016 or... Are there other factors at work? 414-799-1620. I'll give you my theory. But this inspector general's report has completely and totally lit, you know, created again this firestorm among the Hillary supporters saying, see, 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 there was nothing to this. Comey was wrong. If he hadn't have done that, Hillary would have been the president and our national nightmare would have never occurred. All right, do you buy that? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1218. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, the Inspector General's report comes out. It is very, very harsh towards former FBI Director James Comey, appropriately so. It is not a particularly flattering view of some of the career people at the FBI. But now a lot of the Hillary Clinton supporters are saying, see, 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 if he hadn't have done what he did in October, well, when he said that she was now, the investigation was being re-upped, she would have won. I don't buy it. Let's start with Chad in Elkhart Lake. Hi, Chad. Hey, how's it going today? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Was this the deciding factor? Well, I do have to say this. I'm not, uh, I'm a taxpayer. Um, I work for a living, seven days a week, actually. My wife thinks I should get a different (laughs) job. Anyways, what I do think is the factors why she didn't make it. Um, You know, I got to say, she's been up to a lot of dirty pool and pretty Mm -hmm. much her whole political career. Benghazi was one. Um, Haiti was one. The Clinton Foundation was one, and these are facts. These aren't just assumptions and, hey, 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 told you so, Um, and a lot of other things. And uh, I think people are pretty much sick and tired of it. And I think that's why uh, President Donald Trump is now our president. Yeah, that's you know, my opinion. Yeah, no, Chad, I, and see, I agree. I, I, I mean, here's the, the bottom line. I, I, people just weren't that into Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I, I think that's why she, she didn't come to Wisconsin. 
You know, she assumed that Wisconsin, she took it for granted, she lost Wisconsin. She lost Michigan. She lost these states that I think she, she thought, Pennsylvania, that she thought she had in the bag. And, and it's not because of James Comey. Or to the extent you think that October letter might have had some sort of impact, I, I think it's kind of like my, my idea of karma. I think everything kind of works out. The universe has a way of evening things out. All right. Let us assume that you say, yes, she, she got she got an un, she was dinged unfairly when Comey did what he did in October. Well, my argument would be she got an unfair positive bump when Comey came out and did what he did in June when he issues that when he comes out with this unprecedented press conference, essentially clearing her, which, again, took that away as an issue for month after month after month. So to the extent you I mean, for the people who are Hillary Clinton defenders, in my opinion, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't say oh, she got messed over by what he did in October, if you don't also acknowledge that she got a pretty big bump when he did what he did in June, which is why Comey was so wrong to get involved in this thing from the beginning. The other reality is the Clinton campaign was was fading. This race was narrowing, and undecideds were breaking overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. That's just one of the realities. Plus, as we know, the, the polls... This time around, for whatever reason, and you start to see this in several elections, but back in 2016, the polls did an absolutely terrible job of picking up support for Donald Trump. There's a lot of theories as to why that is. Doesn't matter. But the truth of the matter is, it's tough to try to make a case by looking at the polls and saying, oh, well, after, you know, after that came out, she dropped three points in the polls. Well, uh, who knows? Because I think the polls were way off. I don't think they ever accurately reflected where this race really was. Chad in Oshkosh. Chad, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how you doing, Jeff? Real well, thank you. Okay, did Comey cost her the election? I don't believe so. Um, as I recall, Hillary's numbers started going south before Comey's announcement. Yes. And if I really had to guess anything, I would say that Comey saw that trend and tried to hedge his bets or keep his job mm-hmm. by releasing some information that makes him look more unbiased mm-hmm. or, or balanced out what he had previously done in yep. regards to stating that, you know, that, that she shouldn't be charged. Right. Right. So that's what you think his motivation was. Uh, well, Comey's a really hard guy to read. Right. But, but you know, if, if there's, if there was anything going on, if, if, if his actions were politically motivated, that would be my best guess at what his motivation was. Yeah, Chad, thanks for calling. I, I actually, I, I think his motivation was self-preservation. Here, hear, hear me out on this one. I, I, again, what he did in June was something that FBI directors do not do. It's it, it just, and, you know, I, I don't want to walk through all the, the protocols, but, you know, if, if the FBI agents, they don't decide guilt or innocence. They don't decide bringing charges. The FBI is an investigative agency. It is ultimately the Department of Justice or an individual U.S. attorney's office that makes those decisions. Now, you do it in consultation with your investigator, but for the director of the FBI to go start revealing what they had in the investigation and then give his conclusion, that is absolutely and totally unprecedented. One of the things that happened is I think once Comey did that, for whatever reasons, he was then in a trick box. Because keep in mind, he got called to testify in front of Congress, and he was defending his decision to go public with this. Well, now he's under oath. It's not just a statement. I mean, he's testified in front of Congress. So now you get this new evidence that might 
make your previous testimony, well, not incorrect, but it might need to be modified. So that's why I think Comey had to go public with this, because he was afraid, hey, if um, it comes out that we have reopened this investigation and I haven't told anybody after I've cleared her, I, I might find myself in the position of, giving false statements to Congress or whatever, especially given that you have a continuing duty to to disclose if facts change. It it just underscores again, though, why Comey was so wrong in the way he handled this from the beginning. And so everybody who thinks that James Comey is some kind of hero, let me tell you, I have a lot of friends who work currently for the FBI or retired FBI agents, and a, a lot of them just kind of shaking their head at the way he allowed the Bureau to deteriorate and the way he allowed it to become politicized. Did this cost Hillary Clinton the election? I, I just, I don't think so. Did it help her? Probably not. But um, I, I tell you, it certainly helped her when he did what he did in June. I think everything evens out. When we come back, the Journal Sentinels does a major league hatchet job on the Attorney General, and we're going to call him out for it. Stick around. It's 1228. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve thirty-six. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. My daily producer Gru is taking the day off. Roadkill is back. Welcome. So when you call up the number, it's going to be Roadkill that's answering the Roadkill. If you're hearing this this noise, if you hear this kind of like primal scream, ah, 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 and you wonder what that is, it, it's actually executives at Fox Sports because uh, Fox Sports has paid a boatload of money for the right to carry the U.S. Open Golf Championship. Matter of fact, so it's, I mean, it, it's been on, the first two days have been on Fox Sports, and then they've got big weekend coverage, and the U.S. Open's a big deal. Um, the way it works is, if you qualify for the U.S. Open, the field is about like 140-some players, give or take. And then what they do is, after the first two days, they have what is called the cut, not all 144 or however many players there are, not everybody gets to play on the weekend. If you're going to make the cut, it is the top 60 players and ties. So, uh, again, I, you know, you, you can have 70 people that if, if you're tied for 60th and there's 12 people that's tied, that's fine. Then, then you have 72 people that do it. But it's the top 60 players and ties. The... They're halfway through the the second round, and the way it's shaping up is it looks like the cut line is going to be, let's see, it looks like it's going to be plus seven. If you're seven over par, if you're seven over par or lower, you're probably going to get to play on the weekend. If you're eight over par or more, you're going to get to to go home. And the reason, again, you're hearing that, that awful noise is because... Tiger Woods and, you know, love Tiger Woods or or hate Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is a draw. And if you've got Tiger Woods playing in your golf tournament and you're a TV executive, you're you're going to have more people that are watching. A lot of people are cheering for him. Some people are going to be rooting against him. But he is a, a draw. He had an awful round yesterday. He opened up at eight over par. And if he would have been able to turn it around today, you know, and, and play you know, a couple strokes under par or something, you know, he had a chance to make the cut. He played in the morning, though, and while he had a better second round than a first, he finished at 10 over par, 
And just looking at it, there, there's no way 10 over par is going to make the cut. So Tiger Woods is going to be going home for the weekend, and uh, along with a couple other prominent golfers as well, um, Phil Mickelson, Jordan Spieth, some of the other, uh, Rory McIlroy, they all had bad first rounds, and they're going to have to really turn it around if they're going to make the cut. But we do know Tiger Woods is not going to be playing on the weekend, and that scream you hear, oh, 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 that is Fox Sports golf executives in absolute pain because Woods is not going to make the cut. All right. I understand this is an election season. And what you're going to start seeing, and and you're already seeing this to an extent, is in some of these newspapers, you will have stories that are run which demonstrate, I think, the overt hostility that you know certain members of the media have for I don't know, certain politicians, primarily Republican politicians. You're going to see one story after another trying to trash Walker in one way or another. And I think a lot of these stories are are what I would describe as as accurate but not true. That's a line from the old uh, movie Absence of of Malice. There is a story at JS Online which I, I think underscores this. All right, Brad Schimmel is the attorney general of the state of Wisconsin. He is running for re-election. Brad is a career prosecutor. I have known Brad Schimmel going back to my days in the U.S. Attorney's Office when he was an assistant district attorney in Waukesha County. He is incredibly well thought of in the legal community and extremely well respected. Both, he, I mean, he really came through the ranks. He was an intern in the DA's office in Waukesha County. He was an assistant district attorney. He was the Waukesha County district attorney for a number of years and, and then ultimately was elected as the attorney general of the state of Wisconsin. Again, he's up for re-election. One of the the issues that, that's kind of out there is, and, and this comes up every four years, trying to manage the state crime lab is always a problem because you, you never have enough people in the this, – this has been an issue going back to the 80s, you know, the, the way the crime lab has been managed. And, and every attorney general has to deal with this because you have all this evidence that goes into the crime lab. Do you have the experts that, um, you know, test it appropriately? You know, what happens to things like that? After someone um, comes in and says they have been the victim of a sexual assault – What frequently happens is that they will go to a a doctor, a lot of times an emergency room physician, and they will get a, a they will get an examination looking for whether or not there has been a a rape. Right. And the the doctor will conduct an examination. They will look for things like um, is there semen present that 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 type of thing. Has there been sexual contact? Does it look like has there been any sort of violence that's been attached to this? You know, it, it's it's a medical examination which can help buttress and determine whether or not there has been again a sexual assault that that's occurred. Right, so what happens is that these the, the evidence of this checkup goes into again what they call a rape kit, right? So that's it. And then it's put aside and then ultimately at some point in time, now this this is what the protocol used to be. Um it, it's then forwarded and the prosecutor, it becomes a part of the evidence, and the prosecutor makes the decision as to whether or not the the evidence, the forensic evidence, the physical evidence that's been obtained during this examination is going to be processed or not. 
Uh, in other words, whether it's going to be examined by the crime lab. Now, you might say to me, Jeff, wait a second. What, why wouldn't you test this? Every time some woman comes in and says that she was sexually assaulted, or a man for that matter, why wouldn't you, you know, have this test done? Why wouldn't you examine everything? Well, because the, the, the reasoning, at least the reasoning has been up until recently, that there might be occasions where, from the perspective of a prosecutor, you don't need that evidence. For example, let's say that Sally goes in and says that she was sexually assaulted by Roy. All right. He, you know, we, we were out on a date and he sexually assaulted me and we had intercourse. And he forced himself on me that she says that. So then the police. OK, so she goes through. She has the test done. The police then they go out and they interview Roy and Roy says, well, uh, we went out on a date, and yes, we had sexual contact. Yeah, we, we had intercourse. There's no question, you know, we did this, but it was consensual, that this was not against her will. All right, in that particular example, having the rape kit processed really isn't, in most cases, going to tell you anything, because there's no question that you know, sexual contact occurred, and it occurred between those two parties. You know, you it's it's you don't have to prove it. He says, "Yeah, we 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 had sex." So you would expect that you know they're going to find whatever they're going to find. It's not an issue at the trial. So there, for for most of the time, for example, I was a prosecutor in that particular situation. Unless there was some other reason going on, maybe you know you you, you thought maybe Roy was a serial rapist and you wanted to see if samples, DNA samples from him, matched up to other cases or something. You know, processing the rape kit in that case really and spending all the money to have the test done doesn't advance the prosecution any. Because, again, it's not an issue. They admitted that they had sex. Boom. So why do it? Um, again, unless you're looking for something larger or a bigger picture. Now I think with the advent of DNA testing and all, now I think the general policy is that they do it um, just so they have people's DNA on record in case something should ever come up. Well, anyhow, here's the story in the paper. Wisconsin County... Wisconsin County left 26 rape kits untested when Attorney General Schimmel was the DA. So this is a hit job they're doing on Brad Schimmel when he was the district attorney in Waukesha. Oh, they, they had 26 of these rape kits which were un, you know, untested. And that's the screaming headline. Well, the reality is, I mean, this happened in all the counties. And Waukesha County, for example, had dramatically fewer rape kits that were untested than most counties. Um, actually, the story in small print notes, Brown County had about 21 kits per 10,000 residents um, that were untested. Waukesha, the rate was about two kits per 10,000 residents. So, I mean, Waukesha did a really, really good job of getting the stuff tested. Of the 26 kits that were untested, um, okay, so there's 26 cases, Nine convictions were obtained without the rape kit results. In three more cases, the suspect admitted the results. And for most of the remaining cases, the police said the suspect was known 
or the case was dismissed. In other words, it's not like you have cases that are languishing or aren't going to be able to be proved. In the vast majority of those cases, you simply didn't need the evidence that was contained in the rape kit to make the prosecutive decision or to prosecute the person. But yet you get the headline, Wisconsin County left 26 rape kits untested when Attorney General Schimmel was the DA. Come on. I understand it's the elections, and I understand that you've got agendas, but can't we do better than this? Really? 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1250, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. After an always welcome home off day, the Brewers welcome the Philadelphia Phillies to town for a crucial three-game weekend set. Hall of Famer Bob Euchre is in the booth, and he gets you set for the first pitch. Our coverage starts at 635 this evening. It's sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Be sure to check it out. All right, Roadkill is producing the show today. All right, now we've made a mad. The Canadians are mad at us. All right, there is this on, and if you're a regular listener of this program, you know that I think, I think the president's approach to tariffs is misguided, at least as far as it applies to Mexico and our European allies and, and, and Canada. Um, if the purpose is to try to discourage China, from dumping cheap products onto the market. Well, okay, then what you do is you do what apparently we've done today, which is announcing that, you know, we're going to impose tariffs on uh, stuff coming in from China, understanding that China is then going to retaliate with similar tariffs. And, and that's the debate that's going on. But that's okay with me. I mean, that, that that's fine. If you want to pick a fight with China because you believe that China is the problem, I, I don't, I get it. I don't, not still, I'm still not sure that you know, engaging in a trade war is in the best interest of the United States in general. And I know it's not in the interest of Wisconsin because a number of the items that are getting targeted by these countries for tariffs are stuff designed to hurt Wisconsin. Agriculture things like, you know, we're a major exporter of cranberries, for example, or Harley Davidson motorcycles or, or things, you know, our dairy products. So I'm, I'm, I don't believe in starting trade wars, but if you're going to engage in a trade war, I, it, do it with China. If China is the problem, going after Canada or Mexico or Europe to me makes no sense. So I, I disagree with the president's overall strategy. He ultimately thinks that he's going to be able to negotiate better trade deals by taking this position. Maybe he'll be right. You know, who knows? Time will tell. But he has, of course, ticked off the Canadians by you know, calling them out on various trade issues. And we, in return, find that the Canadians are mad at us. Here's the story. This is out of the New York Post. Blame America. Canadians have taken to practicing pocketbook diplomacy in defense of their prime minister, who is caught in the trade war. Shoppers are shunning Kentucky bourbon, California wine, and Florida oranges. They are avoiding American companies like Starbucks, Walmart, and McDonald's. Canadian network CTV News reported on Wednesday. On Twitter, there's hashtags like hashtag buy Canadian, hashtag boycott U.S. products, etc., an Ottawa man posted a Trump-free grocery cart full of products from Canada or from countries with strong leadership. So Canada is starting to fight back. Now, I've got a couple comments on that. First of all, 
I will start taking this more seriously when Canadians stop fleeing Canada, for example, to come to the United States to get health care because their health care system is so screwed up. I don't see people saying, hey, boycott traveling to the United States when you need to have various medical procedures done and you don't want to wait nine months or a year or two years to have these procedures done. In addition, um, the truth of the matter is, if you want to try to buy Canadian, I think that's fine. Just like I, I think it's fine to try to buy American. My guess, though, is you are going to be able, when it comes to goods and services, you're going to be able to do a lot better buying American than you are going to be if you have to, for example, buy Canadian. I mean, who wants to go through life drinking nothing but Molson beer, for example? Just saying, all those different things. So Canadians, apparently some Canadians are mad at us. They say they're not traveling to the United States on vacations and things like that. I think maybe the best way this ends is you know a lot of these loudmouth Hollywood celebrities like the Robert De Niro's of the world who said if Trump was elected, they were moving to Canada. I think the real way to do this is, okay, if Canada doesn't want to have some of these U.S. imports, that's fine, but maybe we can ship some of these loudmouth celebrities north of the border and be done with that. 1255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, blame the United States. Now I say blame Canada. Stick around. W277-CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 61 degrees outside, going to get warm. Uh, that's okay. We wait all year waiting for warm weather. Now, 90 degrees might be a little bit extreme, but... Nonetheless, we haven't had very much warm weather lately, so hopefully that's going to be changing shortly. The U.S. Supreme Court is soon going to decide a Wisconsin landmark redistricting case. What will it mean statewide and across the country? Gene Miller has the details. 651 Monday on Wisconsin's Morning News. Yeah, that's the the so-called gerrymandering case. And um, Supreme Court's, there's only, I think, two more days that they have for announcing decisions and cases. That's one of the big ones that's pending. And um, I have some theories as to how it's going to turn out, but you know, it's always best to wait and see what the court ultimately decides to do. Gene will bring you up to date on that on Monday morning, so check that out. When we come back, if you are a landlord in Milwaukee County, one more reason to sell your property and get out of Dodge. We'll talk about that. And then the latest, oh my gosh, how racist this is. It's a Father's Day card. I'll describe it. Stick around. 1259. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Roadkill. Do you know what Section 8 housing is? You do not. All right. That's fair enough. I, a lot of people don't. Um, Section 8 housing is essentially, it, it's government, it, it's, it's rent assistance. And, and there's various ways you can get rent assistance, but... Um, typically around here, southeast Wisconsin, it's referred to as Section 8 or, or RA, rent assistance. The most common form of rental assistance is run through what's known as the Section 8 program. Section 8 housing assistance is available to low-income families. And what happens is once you qualify for Section 8 housing, that, that assistance moves with you and can be used to pay for rent at any rental unit that accepts Section 8 housing. Now, the way it stands now in Wisconsin, 
in southeastern Wisconsin, Milwaukee County in particular, landlords do not have to accept tenants who want to pay with Section 8 housing. That's the way the law stands, at least as of this moment. The way Section 8 housing works is a tenant chooses the rental unit where they want to live. The landlord is then allowed to to go through the screening process, just like you'd screen tenants for anything else. Um, but once you accept, once you accept the the tenant with the rental assistance, then what happens is your unit has to be inspected by the government, and it has to qualify. The government will then come in and will tell you what the maximum amount of rent that you are allowed to charge for your apartment will be. And then the Section 8 program pays you as the landlord directly. Now, what happens is, in in many, I would say most, but not all cases, the Section 8 payment isn't the whole cost of the apartment. So the landlord's going to be getting some money from the government, and then they're going to be getting some money from the the tenant. Okay, so that, that's how this works. Now, you might say to me, well, Jeff, why would a landlord not want to accept the Section 8 housing tenant? Because you already said it's going to be the government that's going to be paying some, maybe most, maybe all of the monthly rent payment. Why Why wouldn't you want to do that? Because then you don't have to worry that you're going to have to be, you know, chasing down uh, tenants for the dough. You know that let, let's let's say that the apartment is $1,100 and the Section 8 payment is 900 If you're the landlord, you know that, you know, every month you're going to get at least 900 bucks. Why wouldn't you jump on that particular thing? Well, the reason is because there's all sorts of rules that come with Section 8 housing. For example, again, as I was saying earlier, the, the government comes in and they, sets, they set what they think is the maximum appropriate rent to be charged. Also, a landlord... If you are accepting a tenant with Section 8 with the Section 8 housing funds, the rent assistance, you can't use month-to-month leases. You have to enter into a 12-month lease. Now, that may or may not be a big deal, but there are some landlords who don't want to give year leases. For whatever reason, they want to use the month-to-month lease if you accept Section 8 housing tenants. You can't. You can't use a month-to-month lease anymore. Now, you could use a month-to-month lease if a tenant was not Section 8 housing. You know, uh, somebody that's not being paid for through this program, you could give them a month-to-month lease. But if it was Section 8 payments, it has to be at least a year lease. And for some landlords, that could be a big deal. For others, it doesn't matter. Now, why do I tell you this? Because as a general rule, some landlords decide that they want to, they, they want to, they want to deal with this. They like, they like the certainty. They like the fact that once they screen the tenant, and they are allowed to screen their tenants, once they screen the tenant, they like the fact that they're going to get a guaranteed payment. 
Maybe it's not the full amount of the rent, but again, for some landlords who've had deadbeat tenants who haven't paid anything, um, the, the idea of the person being able to sit there and it takes six months or a year to evict them or whatever, and you're not getting any sort of payment, that's not very attractive. If you're dealing with a, a rental assistance, a Section 8 tenant, you know that you're going to be getting that monthly check from the government. You know, and, and even if there's like an eviction battle going on, as long as that person's still there, you're going to be getting some money. So there is that certainty. The flip side, though, is, you know, you're allowing the government control over a number of things, primarily the month-to-month lease, but I think there's other things as well. You're becoming, you're agreeing to all these government regulations. Some landlords embrace this. Other landlords just don't want to fool around. They don't want to deal with this. They don't want to be told that we can't do month-to-month leases or whatever. So people can decide one way or the other whether they want to take Section 8 housing. At least they can now. Under a resolution that came through the Milwaukee County Board last week that's going to be voted on by the full county board next week, the proposal is that as part of the anti-discrimination ordinance, uh, landlords in Milwaukee County are going to be prohibited from discriminating against tenants solely because they want to use the Section 8 program. Like I say, now landlords can pick or choose. They can decide, you know, we don't want to get involved in Section 8, and so they can say, no, sorry, we don't take this. Under this ordinance, which I think is going to fly through the crazy Milwaukee County Board, it will now be against the law for landlords to say, we don't want to accept Section 8 housing. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated, but that that's pretty much the, the highlight. And if and when this new ordinance is passed, if you are a property owner and a landlord in Milwaukee County, you will now lose the ability to choose whether you want to accept Section 8 housing tenants and all the rules and regulations that come with it or not. And I think it's fundamentally wrong. I don't think the government should tell you as a landlord that you have to accept a particular type of payment and then all the strings that go along with it. If this were just an ordinance that said, all right, um, you can't refuse a tenant that brings Section 8 housing money with you, if there were no strings attached to the Section 8 housing, that might be different. But there are all sorts of strings that are attached to it, starting with the fact that you can't use month-to-month leases. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is a gross government overreach, and I think landlords in Milwaukee County should have the right to say, no, we, we don't want to get in partnership with the government. We don't want the government dictating in this fashion who we have to accept if it comes along with the condition of what we're going to do with our property. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss next. It's 118. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 120, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Look, I, I have nothing per se against this, this rental assistance, the Section 8 housing. And if landlords decide it's the way to go, but God bless them. Milwaukee County, though, is about to say, you don't have a choice anymore. You've got to accept this if a tenant has it. And it's not just accepting the rent payments. It's accepting all the different strings that come with it. That's what I think is appalling. And what the county board is about to do is wrong. It is anti-landlord and... 
I tell you, if you're looking for an excuse to sell your property and get out of Milwaukee County, this is just another one. David in Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, this is wrong in so many levels, I don't even know where to start. But I, I would say, you know, why as uh, a taxpayer, would I have to subsidize, be forced to subsidize for somebody else to live somewhere where it doesn't, and my, it doesn't need to be subsidized currently? Uh, it's, it's just a bad road to travel because once that starts with the, you know, with the housing end of things, right. they'll start looking at commercial. And they'll say, well, why can't you have, you know, a low-income business open up here? And, and, and it's mm-hmm. just, you're just, it, it's a, it's a terrible way of trying to help people when in actuality you should be saying the exact opposite. Say, hey, listen, you know what? Uh, this is not working the way it is. We need to uh, we need to figure out a different way other than this direction. Yep. No. Th- thanks for the call. A- a- absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing. And again, there's, you know, there there are there there are reasons why a landlord would want to accept this. I I get it. Um, I mean, I get it uh, that. That, that you know for some reasons why you would want it, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But right now, if you are an individual property owner, you have that that choice. And again, for example, for whatever, let's say you want to do a month to month lease. I don't know. I've never been a landlord, but maybe there is a reason why you want to do that instead of having to give a year lease. Well, once you go down this route with the Section Eight tenants, you no longer have that ability to do the month to month leases. All right? Maybe you decide as a property owner you don't want to do that. Well, all right. Um, you can't do it anymore. Gary in Kenosha. Gary, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, Jeff. Um, I'm totally against that program. What I've seen over the years, I'm a block watch captain, and we live in an older area near the lake. Uh, I guess you'd call it a bay view of Kenosha. But we've had uh, several Section 8 uh, tenants on our block, and the landlords that tend to rent to Section 8, I find, are the ones who could care less about their properties. They'll put... Uh, They'll use a duplex and put two families up and down, and they get the maximum amount. Usually the amount is more than the market value, and they you can always tell the houses. They're, the porches aren't painted, uh, the grass isn't cut, and, the, and you have to beg the city to do anything to get these landlords to uh, put them up the cold to paint or put siding up. It really takes uh, fines and threats by the city. And the people, we had one party, the first Section 8 we had years ago, they were there a week, and they, they stole some, well, the girl stole uh, a GPS and a computer out of a guy's garage in the middle of the day, and they caught her, and then this and that. And then I talked to, I think it was the father, and he says, well, didn't you steal when you were younger? You know, that, that's, that's the mentality. So, And I've heard other people say, I'll mention, we have a couple Section 8 in our block, and and a, somebody will say, well, Section 8, the guy, he's a smart guy, he said, that'll ruin a neighborhood. And I have to agree. Well, I guess, I mean, see, here now here's the thing, I mean, Gary, I mean, tenant landlords under Section 8, even if even if you are part of this program, you are still allowed to to screen and do background checks and things like that. The normal this this doesn't stop you from being, you know, willing to do that. So, for example, um, you know, if you have a prospective tenant. And you, you have to have consistent policies. But if you have a if you have 
for example, um, somebody who has a, a tenant with a poor credit rating or, or a bad reference that comes to you and says, hey, I want to rent a unit from you, but it turns out that you, know, that you do the check and it turns out that they've trashed the last three apartments they were in, you, you could still say no. So it's not like you automatically have to accept them. What this ordinance would do, though, is it would say you could not accept them based on the fact that they wanted to, uh, again, make you get in bed with the government on this whole concept of all the agreements that come, you know, with the, the Section 8 housing, which, again, is why this is controversial. Let's talk to Angela in West Dallas. Hi, Angela. Hi, Angela. Uh, thanks, or, hi, sure. Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm kind of concerned where you obtain the HUD information from in regards to Section 8. What HUD information? So Section 8 is run by HUD, um, mm-hmm. Housing and Urban Development for the federal government. And my only restrictions, and I am a Section 8 uh, recipient because I was in a domestic violence situation for several years, and for me to get out safely, I went on a five-year waiting list, and that's when I got out with my kids. But the only requirement in West Dallas is you can't have a hole in your wall larger than 8.5 by 11 inches. So you can have a pretty large hole in your in your wall when the when the city comes through and inspects the property and there has to be one outlet in each bedroom so those are the only restrictions the differences i'm finding out is each community can then put more restrictions on so in west alice they come through and they they check the property each year to make sure we're not trashing it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we can also do month to month. Usually the first time is one year. Yeah. After if they're right, that, it's month right, to month. Right. For the for the first year it has to be it has to be the one year lease. Right. Right. And then with the city of Milwaukee and possibly Milwaukee County, because they have their own two separate programs, they don't have the manpower to go into each property of the tenants that get Section 8. So let's say a tenant stays in there eight years and they go, they move out, then the city does the inspection. And then if they have trashed the property, then that's out on... Well, well see, Angela, Angela, don't, don't, see Angela, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I understand why why landlords might want to sign up for this. And I don't have a problem with, with landlords who want to do that. But what about the landlords who don't want to participate in this? Shouldn't they have the right to say... We don't want to go into partnership with the government. We don't want to offer that one-year lease for the first year. I mean, shouldn't they have the right to do it? That's one of the reasons why housing is so scarce in the Milwaukee area. If you go to Florida, um, all of Florida, landlords, you know, they they praise the rent assistance to Section 8 Mm -hmm. system. But, again, I don't know their restrictions. Maybe they have more restrictions on the tenants. I think the city and the county of Milwaukee need to require more restrictions of the tenants, like go into the properties each year to make sure they're not trashing them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that would then eliminate. The other thing West Alice does, if a, if a tenant misses one month's rent, boom, they're out. So I don't know what goes on in Milwaukee or Milwaukee County, but, you know, well, my understanding. I mean, thanks. I'm, I'm kind of against clocking. I mean, I, I think that. I mean, my understanding is the process is that there has to be. You you have the same eviction process, and now what happens is that you are continuing to get paid your your sec. If you're the landlord, you're continuing to get paid your Section Eight money during the eviction process, but you're not, you know, getting the other stuff. Uh, again, I I don't. 
I don't want to get into the debate about whether Section 8 is good or not. My objection to this, and I think the objection of a lot of landlords is, that you now have the government telling the landlords they're going to have no choice, that we are creating a new protected class of renters, and that would be people who are accepting you know, government subsidies to help rent them. That's my issue. Philosophically, I don't think we should be forcing landlords to take this. I don't think we should be creating the new protected class. If landlords want to take them, that's great. No problem at all. 128, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As we approach the 100th season of Green Bay Packers football, relive 100 snapshots as some of the greatest Packers memories in recent history. Text SNAPSHOT to 799-1620 or head to the Packers section of WTMJ.com. I'm Jeff Wagner. Coming up next, Target says it's sorry. Should they have had to apologize? Stick around. It's 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Father's Day. Father's Day is coming up this Sunday. Um, Lots of people are going out and, you know, figuring out what they're going to do for dads and all. Um... I, I'm a. I'm. I guess I'm a dad. I'm a. I'm a. I, I'm. I am now a. I, I've got. I've got two stepdaughters who are just absolutely delightful that are now kind of part of my life, and then all the grandkids and stuff. This is sort of a new phenomenon for me at my age, who who never had children, but just. Um, I, I've married a woman who has a, just an absolutely wonderful family, and so it's always it's always kind of fun. But um, she's got to work on Father's Day, so I think I'm gonna play golf. I think that's going to be my my little treat to myself. But. Um, a lot of people, it's a day that you do something with dad, and it's a day that maybe you go out and you get, uh, I don't know, you get dad a present or something, and, and you get him a card. Now, um, as part of the, the cards, there is a, I don't know, there, there is a term that, that some people, well, some people find offensive, um, and maybe Roadkill is producing the show today. Have, have you ever heard the term baby mama? Yes, I have. You have heard. He's, you've heard the term "baby mama." Yes, okay. Indeed. Well, "baby mama" is uh, again. It's a. It is a term that refers to the woman who has has had somebody's child. That that's my baby mama. A matter of fact, they made they made a movie called "Baby Mama" uh, back about ten years ago. It was a romantic comedy. It starred uh, Tina Fey and, and Amy Poehler. That that's. You know, that was the baby mama movie. And the flip side of baby mama is the term, you know, baby daddy. Who's your baby daddy? Which refers to, uh, again, the biological father of the woman's child. Now, there's, you know, if you look in the urban dictionaries and stuff, there's a number of, you know, references. You know, sometimes the the idea is um, like the the, the baby mama doesn't really have much connection to the baby daddy or, or whatever. But, I mean, these... These are terms that are around, and they are terms that, you know, people use to, you know, refer to each other. Now, a friend of mine who is a Milwaukee County Circuit Judge, Joe Wall, he got criticized a number of years ago. He was on the bench, and he was... I forget even what the case was, but he was talking to somebody, and he used that that phrase, your your baby mama or whatever, and people said, oh, this is terrible that you would be saying something like that. But what Judge Wall was doing is he was communicating with the defendant in the terms that the defendant used himself and would understand. But nevertheless, some people were looking to be offended, and so they were. 
All right, so with this background, here is the story. Target, this would be Target stores, has apologized and pulled a, quote, baby daddy card from its shelves following social media complaints. The Father's Day card was posted on Facebook by some woman out of Texas. And on the front of the card, the first page of the card, it shows a man and a woman kissing. They are, it's an African-American man and it's an African-American woman. They are kissing. And the superimposed over the two of them, holding hands and kissing on the front of the card, it says, baby daddy. That's the phrase that is superimposed over that. Then you open up the card And inside the card that says, you know, baby daddy on the front of it, the inside of the card has a heart, and it says, you're a wonderful husband and father, and I'm so grateful to have you as my partner, my friend, and my baby daddy, exclamation point. Happy Father's Day. Okay? All right. So so that's that's it. Now, I I don't know if, you know, maybe you've never referred to your— husband or significant other, the father of your children, as being the baby daddy. But but maybe you have, just like maybe you've never referred to the woman who has your children as your baby mama, but maybe you have. So anyhow, this card says baby daddy on the front. It's got the, the couple, and they are an African-American couple, kissing, and then the inside again. You're a wonderful husband and father. I'm so grateful to have you as my partner, my friend, and my baby daddy, exclamation point. Happy Father's Day. All right, so this woman sees this in the Target and goes absolutely ballistic. Oh, my gosh, how how dare you do this? Um, this is just terrible about this. Seriously, Target, baby daddy is not a term of endearment. This is an insult to black fathers and a slap in the face to African-American, the African-American community as a whole. As a whole, there are plenty of black men that are excellent fathers, not baby daddies. All right, so this one woman complains, and of course, Target freaks out. Thanks for sharing this with us. We assure you it is never our intention to offend our guests with the merchandise we provide. We sincerely apologize to anyone this particular card is offended. Please verify the store location this was displayed, and we'll share your feedback. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right, first of all, nobody makes anybody buy this card if you don't want to. But baby daddy on the front... And then you've got, you know, the language that I read on the inside. Is this an inherently racist card? Should Target be taken to task for this? Should they have to apologize? Or is this another example of people who are looking for something to be offended by? The politically correct and the perpetually offended. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, I think you can have a clue as to where I'm coming down on this, but we will discuss next. Is this card inherently racist? Should Target have to pull it? They did pull it, by the way, because this one lady complained. But but should they have? I mean, should they have? Is this really racist to use this term in this particular context? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. If you're on the line, hold on. We discuss next. Baby daddy, is that inherently racist? 143, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Tracy in Oak Creek. Hi, Tracy. 
Hi, Miss Hudson. Yes. Um, I'm calling because I believe that the woman that's on the card um, offensive is because it uh, is a misrepresentation of the term baby daddy. So, uh, socially and culturally, the term baby daddy means that the person, the mother and the father, the only relationship they have to each other anymore is mm-hmm. the fact that they share a child. That's a baby daddy. It's not somebody who is is a husband or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a wife. To they they, don't, they only share a child. They no longer have any other reason to be in contact or have a relationship with each other. That's a baby daddy. Well, but. But if you look at the card, okay, so the card says baby daddy on the front, and then you open it up, you're a wonderful husband and father, I'm so grateful to have you as my partner, my friend, and my baby daddy. Happy Father's Day. This card is clearly directed to people who are husbands and fathers. Right, and I think that's why that it's being taken extensively, which you should take with a grain of salt, because I happen to know people who still lovingly and endearingly use right. the term baby daddy. Well, well right. And I guess, see, Trey, thank, see that, that's my point. I mean, could, could this be, could the term be, I, I guess, derogatory and racist? Well, I, I have trouble with the racist aspect because, I mean, the, the, the term, you know, baby mama, that, that's a movie featuring white people, okay? Um, and, and I don't know that I think that that's cultural appropriation. Um, I mean, could you create a card that would be offensive, use that term arguably in an offensive fashion? Um, and I'm thinking of examples, but I guess I've got this little stop sign that's flashing in front of my eyes here. But, but I mean, I, I can accept that, that maybe you could create a card that says, and again, the front of it has this couple that's, that's holding hands and they're kissing each other, and it says baby daddy over it. Clearly, this is intended, this is not intended as a derogatory sort of thing. It's intended, you know, for a woman who is, Sending this to the hus- her husband, you are a wonderful husband and father. I'm grateful to have you as my partner, my friend, and my baby daddy. you got to, it seems to me, look at the context of this particular card before you go completely bonkers and start saying, oh, this is terrible. Could, it, could you create a racist baby daddy card? Sure you could. Is that what it is? No. And I guess I just think shame on Target for giving in to the one whiner that's out there. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, let's see, some of our texts. Not racist at all. We call granddaughters, um, let's see, um, uh, let's see, uh, da, 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 da. I don't believe it was racist at all. I'm sure it was meant to be cute and funny. This is no different than the lady at Hobby Lobby that was upset and offended about selling decorative cotton. When is this stuff going to, you know, stop? Um, all right, here's Vel in Waukesha. Jeff, I'm a black woman who uses that phrase. No way is this racist or degrading towards black men. The, cousin, the card said husband, father, and baby dadder, daddy. This was this lady's personal pet peeve. Yeah, that's, I guess, the, the point of of this whole thing you know but yet we're we're playing you know we're we're playing the race card here and target freaks out which is again i think the the other aspect of this you know target pulled this card apparently it was in 900 stores and they they pulled this card because one politically correct and perpetually offended lady saw this 
She sends this thing, and instead of simply saying, lady, you need to get a sense of humor, Target immediately kind of rolls over, you know, curls up and says, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. This is one of the problems in this world. There is real racism. I I understand this. And there's real sexism. And there's all sorts of real problems. But yet when we give in to the politically correct and the perpetually offended, when just, you know, one person who has a particular interpretation and has a particular issue, then we give in to them. So what's next? Are are we now, again, the the movie featuring white people called, you know, Baby Mama, are we not going to be allowed to watch that? No, we can't show that. Can't show that on cable TV anymore because people are going to be offended by it. I mean, give me a break. If you don't like this particular card, well, don't buy it. All right, nobody is saying that you have to buy it. But if you don't have any sort of sense of humor at all, and any sort of sense of perspective, maybe what you really want to do is just stay out of the stores. Don't go out in public. Put up that bubble around you, and then maybe you'll be safe. 159, 159, 151. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. W277CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studio, this is News Radio WTMJ. It's 154, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, uh, political correctness update. Roadkill is producing the show today. You know who Kevin Hart is, right? Uh, Kevin Hart, very, very successful comedian who's branched into movies. Um, most recently, he, he was in the, the Jumanji movie, the Welcome to the Jungle movie. That that, that was a big, big hit. Um, but in a lot of ride-along, too. It's a lot of stuff that you might have known. He's done a lot of ride-along, ride-along, too. Um, he's had a number of successful comedy albums that he came out with. So he is, I, I think, um, well, I don't know that he's the most successful comedian going now, but but he's doing he's doing really, really well. His act does not involve taking shots at President Trump. He does sort of a non-political type of act. Now, we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, and this is a Kevin Hart update. Uh, Kathy Griffin, who is the out-of-control, crazy, I-hate-Donald-Trump gal. She's the one that got in all the trouble last year for posing with the severed fake head of President Trump with, like, blood dripping from it. And and I think people on the left and the right felt that she had gone over the, the top on this. But by doing this, um, originally she kind of got her back up about this, and then she started losing a bunch of gigs because of it, and then then she apologized, then she walked back the apology, and, and she's back, and, and she's angry. She's just angry that she was called out for this. So she isn't going quietly into the good night, and she gives an interview with USA Today yesterday where she talks about Kevin Hart, who happens to be black. And Kevin Hart, like I say, is extremely successful. And she talks about how she's not going to back away from doing, like, political humor. And I've got humor in quotation marks. That's the air quotes there. But she says, you know, if, if you want to if you want to see a show that doesn't involve politics, go see Kevin Hart. Okay, that's fine as far as it goes. And then she says, you know, he doesn't talk about Trump. And then she says, I personally think that that's a, and then she uses a five-letter word that starts with P that I cannot say on the radio. I personally think that that's a blank move because he's a black man. So if he's a black comedian, he has to be doing, you know, anti-Trump stuff. I'm Kathy Griffin, and I know best. But I guess he's selling more tickets than I ever will. All right, so um, Kevin Hart 
apparently, you know, has responded to this. And, you know, the, the people, you know, what he, what he says is, they said, well, what do you think? You know, she called you a, a wuss, although she didn't say wuss, you know, for, for because you're black and you're not doing politically edged comedy. You're not making fun of Donald Trump. And he says, um, you know, essentially, you know, Kathy Griffin is really the last person on, on my mind. Um, essentially, it's everybody that does comedy on the left nowadays has something to be said about Donald Trump. And um, Kevin Hart apparently has concluded that he thinks the Trump bits are, are overused, and he thinks that people are tired of the political stuff from comedians. And so that's why, you know, he, he doesn't do it. To which— and I made this point yesterday when we discussed this in more detail, to which I say amen. I mean, see, this, this is one of the things, and, and it, it goes back to the story earlier in this week about Robert De Niro showing up at the Tonys and completely out of context, just all I've got to say is blank Trump, not just down with Trump, but blank Trump. And, of course, you, you've got the, the uber-lefty tribe that's sitting in New York, and everybody apologizes, everybody applauds. But it's like, okay, what's what's going on there? You can turn on Saturday Night Live, which has now become not a comedy show, but a political show. You can now, you know, anytime you turn on pretty much any of the late night comedians, that's all that you're getting. It's this narrow, let's attack Trump, let's make fun of Trump, let's mock Trump, and that's fine. That appeals to like the 30% of the 35% of the country that are hardcore Trump haters. But when you choose to go down that route, you narrow cast yourself. You say, okay, this is the tribe that I'm going to appeal to. And then you have guys like apparently a Kevin Hart who says, I don't care if I'm white or black or brown. I, I'm doing comedy to appeal to a, a larger audience. I think this other stuff is overdone. You get it from all these other people. Here, I'm going to do you know something else. And he ends up getting criticized for it. I think it's it's pretty clear that on the success scale, if you want to look at where Kevin Hart is and you want to look at where Kathy Griffin is, I think you'd probably want to be on Kevin Hart's side. In any event, he's not backing down from the criticism of Kathy Griffin, who just, despite despite all the suggestions that people are just tired of her and want her to go away, she just hangs on like grim death to her failing career, attacking whoever she sees fit to attack. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about roads. We're going to talk a little bit about parking. We're going to talk about tattoos on your face and Pop Culture Corner. Stick around. It's 159. It's 209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. All right. Uh, this is, of course, an election year, which it, all the issues that go on, you have to view them in the prism of the fact that this is an election year. For example, in a, in a sane world where we did not have people that suffered from Walker derangement syndrome, the, the announcement that the state of Wisconsin had lured Foxconn to Wisconsin, uh, an entity that is going to, okay, it's going to be centered, of course, in, in Racine, but, you know, they had a big press conference today. They're going to have their corporate headquarters for the, the Wisconsin operation, the U.S. operation. That's going to be in downtown Milwaukee. They're now talking about how they're going to be spreading out jobs all throughout southeastern Wisconsin. In a sane world, 
that would be something that was being applauded. Hey, you're talking about 13,000 jobs. Maybe we're going to create, make, you know, make southeastern Wisconsin a, a technology hub. You're going to have all the, the millions and millions of dollars that are going to be spent building the facility. And then, of course, you're going to need all the, the you know, collateral services that are going to come, you know, and, and the other plants that might locate in this area. Yeah, some of them might be in northern Illinois. But see, in, in a in a perfect world, this would be the type of thing that conservatives and liberals and Republicans and Democrats and independents and people who just don't care would otherwise be dancing. This is great. We've got all these jobs coming here. This is going to be something. You make us a tech hub. Maybe it's going to inspire a, a lot of you know graduates of UW to, to want to stay, for example, instead of having to go elsewhere. I mean, it, it's got all that potential. But, of course, because this was an initiative that was put together by President Trump and Governor Walker, well, you immediately have all the anti-Walker folks, and especially the anti-Trump folks, who just have to say, oh, this is going to be terrible. You know, if it was Jim Doyle that did this, every Democrat who voted against it would have been voting for it with enthusiasm. So now, again, because it's an election year, you have some people trying to decide, gee, can we can we run against Foxconn? And I, I don't think that's going very far. But now the latest thing has been, well, maybe we can't run against Foxconn directly, but maybe we can run against some of the things that are being done to help bring Foxconn here. For example, there is a whole bunch of federal highway money that has been made available. And, and there's no question, roads throughout Wisconsin, roads throughout this country, you know, need improvement. There's been lots of deferred maintenance and things like that. And there's this ongoing debate that we're having about, you know, do we increase the gasoline tax to pay for this? Do you look at toll roads? All these different things. But we've gotten a bunch of federal money. And what was going on in Madison this week is there was this debate about how do you best allocate it? And what they ended up doing, and this is why um, my, my dear friend Alberta Darling, state senator from the North Shore area, I mean, in justifying why a good portion of that federal money needed to be used to finish the I-95 corridor between the state line and essentially Milwaukee County was in, in part because of all the added traffic that Foxconn is going to bring. And Senator Darling, the quotation in the paper is, well, the, the roads in Illinois are much better than some of our roads on I-94 near Foxconn. And, and that's been that phrase, that statement's been phrased, picked up, and and it's being pointed to as evidence of, oh, this shows how the roads are bad, et cetera, et cetera. And the Democrats, thinking maybe they've got an issue on roads, they're out there saying, no, no, we shouldn't be putting all this money into roads by Foxconn. We should be spreading the money out more. Now, the Walker administration and the Republicans who control the legislature are going to do that. They're going to be spending money all over the state, but well, one of the priorities is going to be that I-94 corridor, especially knowing that you're going to have this whole Foxconn development, and you need to have good roads that are going to be able to get the stuff there. But, you know, the whole question of roads could, in fact, be, you know, an issue and, and will, in fact, be an issue, I think, in the upcoming campaign. Governor Walker, for his part, has said I, he's not going to increase taxes. He's got no interest in raising the gas tax or raising other taxes to pay for the roads. And, and that's kind of where we stand right now. I don't think you can have a conversation about the roads, though, without talking about some of the other ways that we spend or misspend money. I admit that every time I drive into downtown Milwaukee now, which is still sort of like a war zone, given all the money that we are spending to build 
Tom Barrett's 2.1-mile trolley line, you know, through downtown Milwaukee, which is going to take people from the bus depot to the Lower East Side. And that's at a cost of, in the neighborhood of, what, $100 million or so, give or take. And knowing that Barrett's ultimate plan, that's not going to happen, but his big master plan would be to spend hundreds of more millions of dollars, maybe a billion dollars, extending the trolley line all throughout the city of Milwaukee. And I understand that the pool of money, and that's why I want to have a conversation in theory, I, I understand that the pool of money, which was used to pay for the streetcar, the trolley, was earmarked for, quote-unquote, mass transit purposes, not the roads. So, I mean, the federal government said you have to spend it on a mass transit purpose and for whatever reason, we decided we were going to spend it on this stupid trolley that that's, he's going to be putting into place. But it does underscore what I think the ongoing debate is. And I, I want to say something that maybe is going to be viewed as controversial. Given the fact that we have limited funds to deal with transit issues, I think the overwhelming majority of that money needs to be spent on improving the roads. I mean, and I guess that that's kind of the question. I understand it's, again, it's sort of spilled milk because it, it sort of shows to me how, how crazy government gets. The idea that you would take, what was the federal grant, $60 million or whatever it might have been, 60 or $70 million or whatever it might have been, and say that instead of being able to use this money to improve the highways or to build new highways or whatever, but rather you had to use it on some mass transit purpose like building the trolley line, to me is absolutely crazy. And it's not a question of necessarily being anti-mass transit. It's a question more of where are your priorities. And particularly in southeastern Wisconsin, but I think pretty much across the state, I think when it comes to spending on transportation, first, foremost, and, and maybe almost exclusively, the money needs to go first to trying to improve the roadways because that's the simple reality is that's where most people are going to go. If you were just, again, you're writing on a blank blackboard, you're writing on a clear blackboard, you know, you've got $67 million. Are you better off spending it building a 2.1-mile trolley line or are you better off expanding the freeway and fixing, you know, potholes on the freeway or things like that. And to me, it's just an absolute no-brainer. You spend it on the roads. And I think that's where the first priority needs to be. Every dime of dough we get, I think first and foremost, rather than, again, putting it into things like trolley lines, we need to put it towards improving the roadways. See where that gets us. And then, you know, let's go from there. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, I'm not anti-mass transit, but doesn't it make more sense to improve the roadways, which is where everybody is going to, what people are going to be relying on, instead of spending on silly farces like, again, the the trolley. 414-799-1620. It's 217. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Potholes, this is in text. Potholes come first. The trolley system is so stupid, I would rather see an express train service to Madison and to Chicago. I would definitely use that to enjoy the sights. I, I, I think first and foremost, first and foremost, and this, I, I understand that we have transportation issues that are there. But it really is irksome for the federal government to say, all right, we're going to take tens of millions of dollars and we're going to say you got to spend it on some mass transit project. And so the city of Milwaukee decides, all right, we're going to lose this money unless we spend it. So instead of spending it on things which are for the good of the overall community, we're going to build you know, Tom Barrett's trolley that almost no people are going to ride. I mean, think of what you could have done on the roads if you spent that $60 million or $70 million, however much it was. Think how much good you could have done on things that people throughout the entire area could really use. Let's talk to Justin in Madison. Hi, Justin. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Just to kind of expand on that point that you just made, I, re- I really think, you know, that this is just another example of kind of the mindset of uh, government officials and, you know, kind of public service and servants in general, that they just, they want to create this system that's all things to all people with public money. And it's easy to do because, you know, I think they're coming from a good place. They want to provide something to the community, but they lose sight of what really, you know, local and even, you know, state and even the federal government now is really meant to do is to provide for the common good of basic services. Right. And it's a question of priorities, right? I mean, is the, you know, if we were flush with dough, would, would something like the trolley be sort of a a cute little add on? Okay, you know, maybe, you know, kind of a clever sort of thing. You let people come in and they can ride the trolley down to Summerfest. I get it, but we're not flush with dough. You know, we have all these competing needs and, you know, improving the roads and, you know, repairing I-94 and taking care of the potholes. That's such a much more significant priority than this luxury item that we've spent 60-some million dollars on. It's it's not even necessarily priority. It's the concept of stewardship, I feel, is just completely lost in you know today's public servant or public official using wisely the resources that are provided by the public and i think you know that Mm -hmm. disconnect is it's not my money i can spend it however i want is is just rampant today and you know this is a a great example of it i didn't pay for it or you know we're getting free federal dollars we didn't raise it so let's just you know essentially pee it away on on whatever we want. Well, well, well right. No, and thank, thanks to call, Justin. And you tie it in. Look, and, and I understand this, this money was earmarked. It had to be spent in a couple different categories. Now, even within that category, I would argue that spending this money on a trolley was, was a silly type of thing. But... It, it was it was this idea that you have to spend this money or you're going to lose it, and you have to spend it on something that, I guess, for, for most people, you would say, okay, what are the greatest needs when we come to transportation? And I'm willing to bet that 9 out of 10 would have said, gee, if we've got $60 million, let's spend that money on improving, you know, improving the freeway access into Milwaukee County or, you know, fixing or repaving the roads or redoing some intersections or whatever, not let's build this, again, this silly trolley line that we're not going to be able, that nobody's going to ride and that we're not going to be able to support moving forward because not enough people 
people are going to be willing to pay for it once it stops being subsidized by the Potawatomi Casino. It's not enough people are going to ride it to make it come even close to paying for itself. That's, again, the frustrating thing. And I, I understand that this is a conversation that we should have been having a couple of years ago. But moving forward, see, I, I think we, we have to figure out if we're going to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars, instead of this politically correct notion that, here, we need to separate some money for mass transit or whatever, and that's got to be different from roadway improvements, you, you need to recognize, first and foremost, people get around on the roads right now. That is, at least in Wisconsin right now, that is where the priority needs to be and that's how we have to you know deal deal with stuff i mean seriously you you know let's let's see a show of hands everybody who thinks that if you had 60 some plus million dollars that you needed to spend on transportation related things can i see the show of hands everybody you know who believes that it would be better to spend that on improving the roadways that people drive on can i see a show of hands mm, look at all the hands everybody who thinks that a 2.1 mile trolley in downtown milwaukee would be the better way to go Hmm, not too many hands going up unless you're the developer that's, you know, building the trolley line itself. Uh, let's talk to Richard in Bayview. Hi, Richard. Hey. What How do you think? Doing, I'm good. What do you think? I'm just calling to make a comment about some certain roads in the city of Milwaukee that really need the infrastructure is just horrible. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, and I'm sure you've been on it. It's Lake Drive all the way from Silver Spring to Lake Park. Both sides. It's horrible. Right. And, of course, we're spending money to – that's the area – like, once you get into Shorewood, that's the area where they're going to be getting rid of lanes and putting in more bike lanes, right? Isn't that what they're doing down there? They're going to reduce it. And so we're going to have more room for bike lanes, less room for cars. I mean, you want to talk about something that just from the beginning is whacked out. That would be it. Yeah. It's – I don't know what to do. It's well, awful. no, it, it's it's awful. No, I mean, thanks. For, there's just so many different. There, there's just so many different priorities that that are out there that where, where money could be better spent. And I, I mean, I, I understand now in Madison, like I say, they're they're fighting on. Do you take? this money that we just got from the federal government, and should you put more into fixing the I-94 corridor, or should you put more, you know, fixing somewhere else? And like I say, that's in the context of of Governor Walker and, you know, we, you know, people who want to try to torpedo the whole Foxconn thing. But my point is, is the bigger, the, the bigger picture. We need to get rid of this idea that here, we're going to pick and choose. You have to take 60-some million dollars, and you have to use it for some quote-unquote, you know, fancy mass transit uh, thing that isn't going to be for the public good or the good of the majority of people. You know, we're dealing with a fiscal crisis. You have to be smart, and we just aren't smart enough right now. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. This Inspector General's report has some dazzling details. There's a, for example, there's an FBI attorney. They identify this person as the primary FBI attorney assigned to the Russian investigation. He'd also been assigned to the Clinton investigation early in 2016. The day after the election, he sends an employee an email saying, I am so stressed about what I could have done differently meaning he's upset that President Trump was elected president. The employee answers, don't stress, none of that mattered, an important apparent reference to the FBI's investigation of Clinton. The attorney then responds back, I don't know, we broke the momentum. The employee answered, no, that's not so. Now, these are all on government messages. These are FBI employees. The person writes back, 
all the people who were initially voting for her would not and were not swayed by any decision the FBI put out. Trump supporters, this is the FBI, this is somebody in the FBI writing to the guy that's involved in the Russian investigation. All of Trump's supporters are poor to middle class, uneducated, lazy POSs. We all know what POS is. I can't say that on the radio, though, that think he will magically grant them jobs for doing nothing. They probably didn't watch the debates, aren't fully educated on his policies, and are stupidly wrapped up in his unmerited enthusiasm. And, of course, POS is an acronym that means pieces of you-know-what. This is, this is coming out. This is these FBI agents or FBI employees or FBI attorneys who are discussing this. So, again, you know, did, was the investigation, is what's going on politically motivated? I don't know. But I tell you, from the perspective of President Trump with these things that are coming out, just because, like I say, just because you're, you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. And it's very clear that there were people in the FBI who are having these types of conversations. They were, in fact, out to get them. And if you happen to be one of those uneducated POSs that these government employees in Washington think about, well, I mean, just... Just be careful out there, I guess. But that's the way some people think of you. Coming up next, it's that time of the week. Pop Culture Corner. We take a walk down memory lane. I'll tell you all about it. Stick around. It's 237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The tornado sirens went off in Brookfield again today. This is, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to make a call there. This is, uh, this is not the first time this has happened. Um, uh, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a tornado anywhere near Brookfield. Um, and yet, uh, they, they, they went off. Uh, and we were getting a number of calls about, you know, why, why are there tornado so- sirens sounding in Brookfield today? Um, Tornado sirens were sounding in Brookfield for a severe weather warning that Brookfield wasn't even a part of. There was a warning for far west Waukesha County and Jefferson County. Um, Um, You just kind of wonder whether there's emergency managers in Brookfield that just kind of like to push that button. And the problem is... That, you know, people, you go, why Why are the tornado sirens sounding? Why are the severe weather sirens sounding? And the problem is you get to become the, the boys or the girls that cried wolf after a while. Um, some fair questions as to what they're doing out in Brookfield. Just saying. Okay. We are now at that point in the week where we put aside the heavy lifting. We stop talking about the condition of our roadways and politics and President Trump and North Korea and all that other stuff. And we we try to have a little bit of fun going into the weekend. I call this segment Pop Culture Corner. Sometimes we talk about movies, sometimes books, sometimes, I don't know, television, sometimes food, sometimes cars, sometimes sports, whatever sort of tickles my fancy on a given week that I hope will appeal to you. Uh Wednesday afternoon, my wife and I went to the the Brewers game. And after the ball game, we decided, yeah, the game ended about 4 o'clock. We decided, oh, let's let's go out and get something to eat. And since we were by Miller Park, 
one of our very favorite pizza places. I'll give them a free plug. A plug. I, I love Balistrieri's. It's on 68th and Wells. Been going there for for years and years. And my wife said, "Well, okay, that that's great, but I tell you what, it, it's a nice day. Let's sit outside." So. There's a, a another Balustrade's restaurant, which is on like 64th and Blue Mound, that's more of a full-service restaurant, but they also have the pizza, and they've got an outdoor deck. And I said, that's cool. So we were out at Miller Park, so we, we get out, and we take Blue Mound Road going out to um, to the location. And as we were going down Blue Mound Road, and I really don't travel that stretch that much anymore, um, on 54th and Blue Mound, for years and years and years, there was a bar. It was, it was Derry Haggerty's Pub. And Dairy Hag, I mean, it was, it was just that way. It was an institution, a 54th and Blue Mound there. And, and Dairy Haggerty passed away a few years ago, and somebody took it over, and it was something else. And then that place went under, and now it's a, another bar. But I remember driving by saying, huh, okay, th- this is a place that's changed hands a couple times. But I, I remember that, that Dairy Haggerty's pub. And, of course, if you are of a certain age, you can remember a time when, when Haggerty's, various Haggerty's were, were big all over. Um, there used to be a Haggerty's bar. Jim Haggerty ran it. And if you went to Marquette, it was on like 11th in Wisconsin. It was the closest bar to the Marquette University Law School. It was also the closest bar to the courthouse. So it was just, it was an amazing place. And it was a dive bar. Okay. But I say that lovingly. I like dive bars. But, you know, you could go in there any hour of the morning or the afternoon or evening and you'd find college kids and you'd find law school students and you'd find, you know, a bunch of lawyers from the courthouse who had headed over there. And, you know, there was, there was one guy, um, I, I just I you know I I just I loved him I, I he's, he's passed away now but he used to he used to hang out there in the afternoons and this is before the day when everybody had cell phones you know if you wanted to get a hold of this particular lawyer you'd call the bar you'd call Haggerty's you know Mike Clark there yep there he is you know and that's that was Mike I just loved him not all the time but I just I used to love Mikey just a, just a great guy but you you'd find him you know you'd you'd find him there you know just hanging and there was a lot of people that ended up uh, doing that and I and it was just a different era and it was just a uh, a lot of fun, and I, I used to love that, but I, I miss that place. And I was thinking of all the different other places up around Marquette that used to be there and then either closed or were demolished in the name of, uh, again, Im- neighborhood improvement, bars like the gym and bars like the Avalanche, um, O'Donohue's, all these different places where I spent time in my misspent youth. And I, as I was driving around the area the other day, I was thinking, I, I miss these places. And I understand times change and people change and taste change and all that type of stuff, but I, I, I kind of miss those places. And I thought for Pop Culture Corner to honor some people that are gone and some you know places that are gone uh i thought we'd we'd have a segment that i call gone but not forgotten southeastern wisconsin bars and or restaurants now i don't want to talk about anything other than bars and restaurants but a bar or a restaurant that you especially miss 414-799-1620 that is the acunet mortgage talk and text line Gone but not forgotten, southeastern Wisconsin bar, a bar or a restaurant that you just, you know, you just wish it was still there. You spent lots of time there. Maybe you got great meals there. Maybe you just kind of hung out at the end of the bar. You were a fixture. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Gone but not forgotten. Um, bars or restaurants that you miss. Uh, we, let's see, uh, Roadkill is lining up the calls right now. I always advise people call quick because our phone lines tend to jam up quickly. We will be back to get to as many calls as we possibly can. Stick around. 242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
46, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, gone but not forgotten. Restaurants, bars that you miss desperately. Let's start with Richard in Milwaukee. Richard, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Richard. Um, I miss, and I only went there a couple of times, I miss Ray Jackson's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the north side of Blue Mound, right near the entrance to then County Stadium. Right, right. Um, as a kid, I always heard about it and I never went. When I became of age, and by that time it's Brewers, he was still around. And a couple of my friends and I went there, and we had a table. I remember him coming up. I knew, I knew he, who he must have been. He came up to our table, just smiled at us. Right. Like, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, a, it was a great place. Thank, I mean, <laughs> my big recollection of Ray Jackson's, this is Gorman Thomas, you know, now Gorman Thomas got traded. He, you know, the Brewers traded him to the Cleveland Indians. The night he got traded, Gorman, God bless him, went up to Ray Jackson's, which was one of the closest bars to County Stadium. And needless to say, he took up a corner of the bar stool and stayed. Um, and he went on TV that night. Like the TV cameras, you know, tracked him down. And he did this interview from the bar at Ray Jackson's. And God bless Gore. I mean, he, he's, he probably shouldn't have been on live TV that night, but, but, but he was. That's what I always think about uh, with Ray Jackson's. Let's see. Uh, let's talk to, um, let's see, is it Russ in Hales Corners? Hi, Russ. I like Russ in Lake Geneva. Hi, Russ. Hey, hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Which you know, I, I, I changed my mind. I was going to say uh, Brian Brunkhorst part of the gym, but the Brewers, <laughs> a, a few Brewers uh, owned a bar on the south side of Milwaukee called Chapter 5. On 17th in Oklahoma. Okay. Don, Don Money, Bill Travers, and what, his name was Sullivan, the equipment manager. Okay. So we played softball in Milwaukee a couple nights a week, and it was, the lights came on, it was closing time, and we were going to the Brewer game the next day, and I asked my brother, I go, who's pitching tomorrow? And he pointed over to Bill Wakeman, <laughs> who was passed out at the bar. <laughs> he goes, he is. <laughs> and, and for the life I don't remember if he won or lost, but... Right. That is one of the great things, too, about Milwaukee, is that, you know, you, you have the sports figures and stuff that are such, that are part of the community that, so, again, oh, Gorman just got traded, he's sitting at the end of the bar, there's Bill Wegman, or whatever, you know, all, all those different things, that, that's, those are the type of places that you you just absolutely love. And again, that's what I was thinking of when I got started this about how I, I, I miss Haggerty's. Now, I didn't go there after I got out of law school and stuff, but it doesn't mean I don't have really fond memories of those places. Bob in Germantown. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Bob. I went to Nicolay High School, so you know what I'm going to say. Okay, sure. I bet you. Let me think. Go ahead. <laughs> the Milky Way driving. Right, where, which is where Cops is right now. But yeah, the Milky Way. My, my wife went to Dominican, and for her... It was uh, Big Boy, Mark's Big Boy. Oh, one. So I was. I thought you were going to say if she went to Dominican. I, oh, right, Whitefish Bay. Yeah, that it was Mark's Big. Boy. You know, a lot of other people. If you went to Shorewood, it was the uh, Pig and Whistle, right, right around the Logan corner from Horn. where I'm there. Yeah, Logan Horn. That that was Shorewood kids. You know? Yeah, that, that yeah. right. Now that no, I mean the Milky Way Drive-in, which which actually. It's where Cops on Port Washington Road is now, but they say that that was kind of the inspiration for Arnold's um, and, and the old Happy Days TV show and stuff. But it's just that, that was, if you went to Nicolay and Glendale, you went to the Milky Way. If you went to Shorewood um, or Mesmer or whatever, you hung out at the, the Pig and Whistle. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to uh, Therese in New Berlin. Hi, Therese. Hi. I miss in Grilly's Pizza in... I think it was probably West Dallas on 92nd by mm-hmm. Oklahoma. Right, 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 right. Were you a regular there? We were when I was growing up. Our family went there a lot. 
Yeah. Isn't that the truth? And you have the, you sit there and you have these memories and you think of stuff. And I, I don't know. I wonder if the pizza would taste the same if you could get it today. I think it would be better. <laughs> that, that could be. Thank, thanks. Sir. I, I've, I've told this story before. When, when I grew up, um, there was a pizza place, Barnaby's, which was part of a chain. And it was on Port Washington Road. And we used to go there when I was in high school. That's the place you hung out. There are like two Barnabies left in the world, and, and one is um, close to the racetrack at Arlington Park. A couple years ago, um, we're, we're down there, my brother and I, and we're down there with a group of people. And we insist we go over to Barnaby's, and this particular Barnaby's, I mean, it, it was just like, at least the physical layout was just like I remembered it from 1973 or whatever, but um, kind of had the pizza, and I think it was kind of like, oh boy, my tastes have probably changed dramatically. Um, Jason in Mequon. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, afternoon, Jeff. Hi. Uh, being a Mequon boy here, um, Hadler's Bar in Bowling Alley, which uh, was on the corner of uh, Mequon Road and 57, where the Piggly Wiggly is right now. Oh. Um, and that was, you know, 20 years ago that that went out of business. Right. So, right. I'm trying to think of, I, I don't know that I've, I mean, I know exactly where you're talking about. I don't know that I ever went in there, but it was a fun place, huh? Oh, fun place. And you were talking about drive-ins. Uh, remember the old uh, 57 drive-in where oh. uh, Woodman's used to be? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all, yeah. all, no, uh, all the, yeah. right. I, I miss, thanks, Scott. I mean, I, I miss the drive-ins. There's there's no question about it. Marty in uh, Neshota. Marty, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Okay. Gone but not forgotten. Albanese's on Keefe Avenue. Um, Excellent. Do you yeah, remember you, Albanese's? Oh, no, right. I mean, right, kind of right down the street from where our studios are now. Um, exactly. You know, and they had, a couple, they had a couple others. There was one in Mequon, but the one I used to go to was the same one you're talking about, right? Yeah, the one on Keith. Yeah. yeah, great memories. Always special events held there. Best Arancini. It was just a really fun atmosphere. The wine in the bottle. Uh, the homemade wine, the right? Yeah. Right. Homemade wine that was pretty much all sugar and stuff, and they'd serve it in like exactly. almost like little shot glass, like the little, yeah. not a little bit bigger than shot glasses. I used to love the pasta that they served because it was always it was the really thin kind of pasta, and I, I yeah, the angel correct. hair pasta, yeah, yeah, used exactly. to love it. It was great. No, I, no thanks. No, there's no question about it. Albanese's, and they had several of those around. Okay, here's a man after my own heart, Sean in Greendale. Sean, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you today, Sean? I am well, thank you. Gone but not forgotten? National Bar and Liquor, my friend. <laughs> that, that for, for people who do not know, there were, I mean, if you were to look up the dictionary definition of, of, of dive bar, there would be a picture of the National Liquor Bar. No question about right it. In the library, my friend. Wednesdays, I loved it. King Cans of Miller, 99 cents. <laughs> Two or three, and I was done. <laughs> That's, I, it, you know, the the only thing that was close to that was the old avalanche that used to be up by you know Marquette, and that that was the same sort of thing. You could get bottles of red, white, and blue for a quarter, and like a shot of something, some mystery liquor for like fifty cents or whatever. And and you'd see college kids, and you'd see people from the neighborhood, just like at the National Liquor Bar. It was really a it was a melting pot. Absolutely. No, it, it, it was. Yeah, no, thanks to the call. Appreciate it. I'm sorry. We were kind of porterhouse by the airport. Sure, I remember that. Stacy's in West Dallas. I remember that. Angelo's Pizza, 16th and Wells. And yeah, if you were a market person, you know that. The Frontier in East Troy. Bottom line is enjoy the places you go to because. 
Ah, they could be here today and gone the next. Gone but not forgotten. A fun topic this week on our Pop Culture Corner. It's 254. We'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds in just a moment. Stick around. W277-CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ. 257, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. What I love about topics like this is it shows that we have shared experiences, and I have about 40 or 50 texts of all these different places, Arthur Treacher's Fish and Ships and Port Road Inn, all these places that are gone but certainly not forgotten. Here and not forgotten, John McCure. What a fun topic that was. That's a great way to spend a Friday. And it just shared memories. There's all these places. You sit there. I mean, it happened the other day. I'm driving back from the ball game going, God, I remember this this bar. It used to be there. Oh, I miss it. And now listen to our listeners and you. You kind of, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, I remember that place. That's (laughs) right. That's so fun. Hey, we've got a lot of stuff coming up on the show this afternoon. Milwaukee police officers, uh, new class of officers sworn in earlier this week. One of the young new officers will be with us to talk about what it's like to be a new officer on the force during this time where it's kind of been a little bit of a tough stretch. So we will have that conversation coming up this afternoon. Uh, a little bit later on, 350 will do that. Retaining talent in Milwaukee, experts say it's the number one thing Milwaukee will need to do to continue to thrive, especially in the minority community. A guy I really respect, Tim Sheehy, the head of the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce, will be with us coming up at 320. That and a little bit of fun on this Friday afternoon. It begins with the news, which is straight ahead at the top of the hour on WTMJ.